Let us pray. As your word is opened to us, O God, we seek truth, the truth about you, the truth about your world, and the truth about ourselves. Open our eyes that we may see. Amen. Our reading picks up right where the first left off. Galatians chapter 2, Paul continues at verse 15. Let us listen together for God's word to us. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is justified not by the works of the law, but through the faith of Jesus Christ. And we have come to believe in Christ Jesus so that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by doing the works of the law, because no one will be justified by the works of the law. But if, in our effort to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have been found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. But if I build up again the very things that I once tore down, then I demonstrate that I am a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this part of Paul's letter to the Galatians is focused on what biblical scholars call the Antioch incident. It's not quite the real housewives of Antioch, but it comes pretty close. It's some real apostolic drama happening here. The first part of the reading featured Cephas, who is actually Peter, by a different name. I don't know why, but it's Peter. The Peter of the Gospels, the Peter who is the pillar of the Jerusalem church. And that's where this drama begins. At the start of chapter 2, Paul speaks of when he visited Jerusalem. And he went to Jerusalem to go to these pillars of the church to try to convince them that what he was doing out there in the Gentile world was not only worthwhile, but that it was also in keeping with the gospel. That it wasn't an aberration, that Paul was doing what Christ had called them to do. So, Paul and Barnabas go to Jerusalem. They try to sell the apostles on the Gentile mission, and initially, they're, they're, they oppose it. They're not quite ready to accept what Paul is doing, but Paul prevails in the argument. Peter, James, and John relent, and they shake hands with Paul. It says that in the letter. They had a handshake. They sealed the deal. A division of labor was put in place. Peter, James, and John will remain there to lead the Jerusalem church, and Paul will go out to the Gentile world to share the good news. And then Peter comes to Antioch, and Paul confronts him. Paul says, I went right to his face. I confronted him to his face because Peter used to eat with the Gentiles. He used to allow for the possibility that these outsiders, these uncircumcised Gentiles, could join Jewish Christians, circumcised Christians, at the table of fellowship, that these could be treated as equals. He was willing to create space 
for those others, willing to create space for that possibility. And then James's people show up, the hardliners, the circumcision faction, and Peter, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, separates himself from the Gentiles. And when others see what Peter has done, they follow suit, including Paul's own companion, Barnabas. So this makes Paul furious. Now, Paul's anger was also the theme of last week's sermon in chapter 1, anger that was directed at the Galatian church, and he'll get back to that. But right now, this anger is singularly focused on Peter. He says to Peter, you yourself are a wishy-washy Jew. You're having meals with Gentiles, and then, then you go and expect these Gentile outsiders to follow the law perfectly, which you, by the way, don't even do. Paul calls him out for his hypocrisy, for holding outsiders to a standard that the insiders don't even keep themselves. But it's worse than just hypocrisy for Paul. Because the issues at stake here are at the center of Paul's mission to the Gentile world. They are for Paul at the center of the gospel itself. This Antioch incident helps to illustrate what the church is trying to navigate at this time. The tensions that they're trying to figure out. They're trying to strike the right balance between being right and being good. Between being pure and being loving between being obedient to the law that they were brought up with and being faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ. On one side, the side of righteousness and purity and obedience, everything is clearly mapped out on that side. They know the rules. The theology is well established. There is little to no guesswork. It's safe. But on the other side, the side of goodness and love and the gospel, that side is uncharted territory. There are no guides. There are no rules. Every day their theology is tested. It is challenged. It is stretched. And it gets reworked as they go along. There's no certainty at all. It's all guesswork. It's risky. A map gives us certainty. It gives us confidence and conviction and when we don't have a map we experience doubt and second guessing and anxiety we're driving with a map we're just following the directions right we don't have to make judgment calls along the way we don't need to pay close attention to the landmarks around us we don't need to internalize the route we don't need to bother keeping tabs on which direction is north but without a map, every move is a judgment call. Wrong turns are possible. In fact, they are inevitable. And you can't ever afford to lose your sense of where true north is. And the law for the church was like a map, a guide, a giver of clarity, a resolver of tension, an eliminator of uncertainty. And Peter, who knew the law, Peter stepped into that tension. Peter ate with Gentiles. He engaged the outsider and brought them in as equals. He embodied the call 
of the gospel. And then, then Peter lost his nerve. James's people arrive, and they come with their certainty and their conviction and their judgment and all of their maps. And the tension for Peter is just too great. The anxiety is too powerful. Fear for Peter wins the day. He reverts back to the law. He separates himself from the Gentiles. He opts for purity over love, for righteousness over grace. Have you ever lost your nerve? Have you ever stepped outside of your comfort zone to show love, compassion, generosity, grace, only to be flooded with anxiety or fear or self-doubt and then to retreat back into clarity and certainty and the the well-worn paths that we know. We lose our nerve all the time and we fall back on our maps maps like the law but more surprisingly still for Paul in this part of his letter the law is not the only map of concern here he is also presenting justification itself this thing that is at the center of his theology as a possible new map that Christians are making That this too, this idea of justification, that even this can undermine the gospel. Here's what he says. If in our effort to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have been found to be sinners, is Christ also a servant of sin? Certainly not. But if I build up again the very things that I once tore down, then I demonstrate that I I'm a transgressor. We have to parse this a little bit. What he's getting at is that our effort to be justified in Christ, as he puts it, is fundamentally an effort for us to be separated from sin. But in that effort, we have a tendency to rebuild the same kind of thing that Jesus came to tear down. We turn justification in Christ into a new law a new structure, a new rigid system with clear rules and firm boundaries. And in so doing, we show the world that we are transgressors. Postmodern philosophy has tended to get a pretty hostile reception from Christians. And that's mostly because it tends to be presented in caricature. If you've heard anything about postmodern philosophy, it might be That in postmodern philosophy, there is no truth. Everything is relative. You have your truth, and I have my truth, and everybody has their own truth, and nothing means anything. And if that were true, it would be a terrible worldview, and it would deserve the criticism that it gets from many quarters of the church. I was introduced to postmodern philosophy by way of a Christian philosopher who wrote a book in 2007 called What Would Jesus Deconstruct? John Caputo is the name of the author, and the theme of this book is this postmodern idea of deconstruction. And the way deconstruction works is it recognizes the ways that truth 
And the ways that we embody truth in our lives, our practices, and in our institutions, that these things are constructed. That is, they are very human. We've made them in large part, which means they are like us, limited. They are like us, imperfect. But these constructions become like the furniture of our lives. They're invisible. They, they are taken for granted. And they have the potential to perpetuate harm. And they can also conceal from us the very reason we built them in the first place. Enter deconstruction. The deconstruction is this idea that sometimes we need to take these constructions, these things that are human, that are fallible and limited, and we need to start to take them apart. We need to interrogate our beliefs and our practices and our institutions. It's not destruction. We're not just leveling the place to the ground and leaving nothing standing, but we're doing this in order to rediscover the beating heart, the core idea or principle, the animating spirit that brought all of this about in the first place. One of the forefathers of postmodern philosophy was a French philosopher named Jacques Derrida, and he was once visiting the United States, New York City, to give a lecture to a law school. This was back in 1989, uh, uh, give a lecture to law school students. He was asked to speak about the relationship between the law and justice. Now, you should know that at least at this time, and in many places still today, uh, a key dogma of postmodern philosophy is that nothing is undeconstructible, meaning we can take anything apart, right? The, the tools of postmodernism can be put to work on anything because everything is constructed. That gets us back to that bad reputation postmodernism has among Christians, this idea that we've constructed everything. We might want to raise our hand and say there might be some things that we didn't construct. Anyways, Derrida's giving this lecture and he says something shocking. It won't sound shocking to us, but it was shocking to them, as shocking as Tom Brady announcing his retirement, or maybe the first time before it wasn't surprising anymore. But it's the kind of thing that makes philosophers' jaws drop. He said, nothing. he said, justice is undeconstructible. He said, justice is undeconstructible. The point to this is that there is something behind the law, this human construction, something behind the law which can't be broken down, can't be taken apart, which isn't just subject to an anything-goes kind of mentality that is the beating heart, the animating spirit that gives shape to the law and requires us to reform the law and reshape the law. So John Caputo, then, is a translator of postmodern philosophy for the church. And in his book, he asks the question, what would Jesus deconstruct? And his answer is the church. That the church is what Jesus would take apart. The church is what Jesus would interrogate and try to get in and through and behind. That there's something behind the church, which is this human construction, something that can't be broken down or picked apart, something that endures despite our failure as the church to embody it, 
something that is the beating heart, the animating spirit that gives shape to the church and that requires us to reshape our lives and to re-examine the shape that our life together takes. Caputo calls it this, uh, this thing in the background, calls it the kingdom of God that is undeconstructible. And Paul calls it the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's what is moving through the church. It's what is empowering us and also challenging us. It's what's shaping us and it's also picking us apart. It's giving us our identity and it's also redirecting our lives toward greater faithfulness. For those early Christians, the law was an easy thing to make an idol of. We like to have our maps, but we can just as easily turn justification into an idol we can just as easily turn the church itself into an idol and so many things as well Paul says it best he says through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God what he's saying is that the law brought him to the place where he was able to move beyond the law in order to live to God which was the point all along we could paraphrase Paul we could say through Christianity I died to Christianity so that I might live to God. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the impulse at the center of who we are. But if we build up again the very things that we once tore down, we show the world that we're missing the point. Someone once said, I have no map, only a compass. The gospel calls us into this uncharted territory where we can't rely on maps, but we have to rely on our sense of true north where the rules are thrown out and there is an awful lot of guesswork where we are neither comfortable nor confident, but we are always challenged and stretched and reshaped where it's not our own life that we are pursuing, but the life of the crucified and risen one. As Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live, in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let us pray. Take our lives, O oh God, our hearts, our minds, and set them free from the things that bind us, be they the evils of the outside world or the ideas that we get stuck in, even the church. May the Spirit of your gospel move through us and in us and around us. May it shape us and continue to reshape us, to make us your faithful people. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.